So there you have it, kids. You might think it's John Piper and it's Jason Allen. <laughs> Just kidding. In all seriousness, it's such an honor to be in this pulpit again, preaching in chapel. Thank you so much, Dr. Allen. I really appreciate the privilege, and I thank you for the opportunity to speak before our faculty, dear colleagues and students, and many guests. It's a joy to have you on campus and to do this chapel message and for the church workshop today. Fifty years ago, the question landed like a bombshell on the cover of Time magazine, Is God Dead? Death of God theology had actually debuted many decades prior, and atheism was no new phenomenon in the West, but the April 1966 coverage of this trend made the conversation a public one. The conversation has never died down since. It was change in Protestant doctrine, primarily through the work of theologians like Thomas J.J. Altizer, William H. Hamilton and Paul Van Buren that made the broader conversation possible. One professor, very much surfing the wave of the spirit of the age, introduced a new liturgy for use in churches to mark God's death. He was our guide and our stay. He walked with us beside still waters. He was our help in ages past. He is gone. He is stolen by darkness. Heaven is empty, a reworking, as you noticed, I'm sure, of Psalm 23. In time, through such teaching, it became not only possible, but even fashionable to identify as an atheist, or at the very least, as a skeptic in the West. In 2019, a new question has emerged in our context. Is man dead? Is humanity dead? To this, I'm going to suggest we say both yes and no. Yes, for as we shall see this morning in chapel, we have died, really died, in Adam. No, for as we shall see later, humanity still has meaning and purpose and God-given identity. This morning, we're going to look at the first part of that answer. We're going to look at the no part, that we have died in Adam. We're going to see that uh, Satan has executed an attack on God's good design. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5. First, we see this morning an attack on God's good design. Three movements in the text that we will cover together. This is the first. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, excuse me, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your holy word, we pray that you would give us eyes to see wondrous truth here reforming truth, remaking truth, renewing truth, and we pray that you would bring conviction and strength and assurance and hope. In Christ's strong name, amen. The account of the origin of human evil begins with the subversion of the created order. Andreas and Margaret Kostenberger say this, the fall of humanity was engineered by a complete reversal of the divine design. What is that design? 
In Genesis 1, 26 and 28, the man and woman are called to rule the creatures that crawl on the earth. The serpent, one of the wild animals made by God, was formed on the sixth day, just as humanity was. The Lord had taken pains to provide for such creatures, having given them, even the beasts of the field, the animals, the serpent, every green plant for their sustenance. You see that in Genesis 1.30. In other words, there is not predation envisioned before the fall. The Lord has actually provided green plants for all creatures. The serpent was not made by God, in other words, to stalk and devour fellow animals. The serpent, just like all the creation, was made to enjoy the good gifts of the creator who revealed himself initially right off the bat to be sustainer as well. He's creator in Genesis 1, but then he is also sustainer. So kind of him to do so. But this is just what the snake did on the day when Adam fell. The snake hunted the man who was made to rule over him. Now, Adam and Eve would not have been confused about God and his desires. The first words of the Lord spoken to humanity in Genesis 2 express God's moral law. Before the woman comes into being, the Lord gives the man formed first the following command and prohibition. Genesis 2 verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The sentence structure is noteworthy here and matters for our discussions of the human person. Is man dead? Is there any meaning and purpose to our humanity? Is there anything fixed about our identity? As Ken Matthews notes, as God has given the natural world and all life forms boundaries, human life too is instructed to live within prescribed boundaries. So, Adam first learns, in other words, that he is free to consume food from any tree. The Lord's communication to him in Genesis 2, 16 and 17 centers in the bounty spread before him. When I talk about this in family devotions in the Strand home, I attempt to capture the meaning here for my three children by saying, It's as if we're looking at a forest and there are 10,000 trees and the Lord is saying, you can eat from 9,999. That's great. That's good. The fruit is there for you. I've made it for you. And yet there is one, one of 10,000 you cannot eat from. Why do I give this little picture in family worship as I lead it? I give it because it shows Contra the way we might read the text, that there's like four trees out there or two trees and one of them is, you know, untouchable and the other is fine, that God has spread a mighty harvest before his first man and first woman and he has bid them come and partake. In other words, he wants them to feast on the goodness of the world he has made, but he has given them one tree, just one, just one, and said, go no further. Do not eat the fruit from it. It is clear that Yahweh does not fear Adam, assuming a moral understanding of the world. His command and prohibition show us that Adam is fundamentally a moral being, a spiritual being with a strong moral component, but Adam was not to seek knowledge that was not his right to possess. Here before the fall is a sure sign of what is called human contingency or dependency. In other words, Adam depends fully on God for his existence. He is not self-generating. He is not self-created. 
He is not self-existent. There is what we call in theology the creator-creature distinction, and it is established firmly in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Adam does not have all the rights and privileges that God has. Adam lives in freedom. You're free, God has already said, and yet his responsibility to obey the Lord is a real responsibility. B.B. Warfield, no shy Reformed theologian, says this about human freedom. Note this. Adam was like God in his person, an intellectual, moral, voluntary being different from beasts. Man was put at the culmination of the creation, a self-conscious being, self-governing, and self-determining. Those are strong words from a figure like Warfield with the reputation he has, great reputation. Still, we are right to speak of Adam's circumscribed freedom. You understand the point? Adam has real freedom, and yet it's circumscribed freedom, bounded freedom. This is pre-fall. This is the way it always has been, in other words. This is what freedom always has looked like. Human freedom in the biblical mind does not consist of leaping all fences and demolishing all boundaries and truly doing anything you desire. That's never the Bible's understanding of human freedom. It doesn't take till the New Testament to articulate that truth. Human freedom does not mean separating oneself from any divine influence. Christian theologians have a little different nuance on some issues of human freedom. Let that be said. We do in the Baptist world, the SBC world, we we agree on so much. And yet we note here from the text that freedom in Genesis 2 looks like obedience. It looks like obedience driven by humility driven by a proper recognition of one's creaturely human status, mankind at his freest. In this point in the biblical narrative, does not volunteer his thoughts to God. Adam doesn't say, oh yeah, oh great, God, I love this vision you're sketching for me. This is way cool. Could I suggest a few additions to the picture? There's no negotiation here that occurs in Genesis 2. There's no back and forth. They're not working on the contract together. This is not an open source Google Doc. No. Mankind at his freest listens to God. He's silent before God. Father listening to the good, divine Father's instructions, receiving them so that he will obey them and glorify and show love to his father. Bonhoeffer says it well on the subject of the divine prohibition. The limit given here by God is a gift of grace, for it is the basis of creaturely existence and of freedom. In other words, we actually come to know something crucial about ourselves in knowing our limits. We come to understand ourselves as creatures, and that is not a bad thing. That is not a bad truth. Human contingency is not a negative reality in the biblical mind. It's actually a crucial part of the good plan and design of God for us. It's something we never transcend. It's something we will never transcend in the age to come, if I may jump way ahead for just a moment. Even in the new heavens and new earth, we will not cease to be human beings made by God totally dependent on God. So factor this in to your understanding, whatever it may be precisely about anthropology, about salvation, about sovereignty and human freedom, that real tension. Factor all this in and use this material 
today to engage fellow sinners who think that human freedom looks like doing whatever they want to do, irrespective of God. That is not biblical freedom. Take this material from Scripture and use it. We return to Genesis 3, 1 through 5. The serpent, we learn here, was cunning. Without any explanation or backstory, this evil animal speaks to the woman. The serpent's words matter here, but so does the very conversation itself. Think about what God had taught Adam, the first man in Genesis 2. The man was to lead his wife. The woman is made from his body. The man named his wife. The man does not act here. The man is called in Genesis 2.15 to do what? To work and watch over or work and protect the garden. Did you pick that up in your devotions when you read Genesis 2, I hope recently? The man is, hold, hold up. The man is called to watch over the garden? Protect the garden? Guard the garden? Wait, we're in Eden, right? This is paradise, isn't it? Well, what God is signaling in Genesis 2.15 is that attacks are coming. There are real threats out there. We, we don't get much material about it. Don't misunderstand the point. And yet in a pre-fall sinless world, Adam is being charged. This comes to Adam. Adam is being charged to work, to be a provider, and to be a protector, to watch over. Why? Because the snake is coming. Adam, in this scene in Genesis 3, 1 through 5, does not step in, does he? In this scene, the creation seeks rule over the woman, tempting Eve, the first woman, to lead her husband as she definitely does. The fall of Adam and Eve is not merely the flannel graph account you may have learned as I did in Sunday school. Many years ago, I learned it in a small, rural Baptist church in Maine, a church that taught me faithfully the Christian faith, a church I am so thankful for, a church I never seek to, you know, sort of cut myself off of or transcend as a theologian or something like this, a church that shaped me and I'm so thankful for. I learned there that the fall is the eating of the forbidden fruit, but if you go to the text, you see that actually there's more here, isn't there? Because the fall of Adam and Eve is also about the unraveling of the good and gracious order of God. This is an assault on divine design. This is an assault on creation order. The serpent is trying to lead the woman to reject the design of God. Henri Blachet, a French theologian, says this. Evil is not in the good that God has created, but in the rejection of the order that God has instituted for the enjoyment of the world. So there is a creational order. There is a social structure, a familial marital structure in the cosmos, and it is being profoundly subverted here. The serpent is executing two attacks against God and man in this passage. First, the serpent is lying about the Lord's instructions to Adam, and Eve's response shows that she is softening in her understanding of God's direction. Second, the serpent then directly defies the testimony of the creator and accuses the Lord of spreading falsehood and giving the woman a false vision of fruit eating. The serpent directly contradicts. God's moral law, and God's covenant promise here in Genesis 3, 1 through 5. The serpent offers the woman a counter-revelation to God's 
revelation. If the woman eats the fruit, the serpent says in verse 4, Genesis 3, she will not die. She will, in fact, become like God. She will possess the knowledge of good and evil that only God has. The serpent's words suggest that God is the evil one, not the serpent, not Satan. The serpent suggests that God has harmed Adam and Eve by giving them his moral will. The opposite is true. It is the serpent who is slowly winding barbed wire around the woman. And it is the Lord, understand this, friends. It is the Lord who gave the woman protection through his decree. Today, we still hear this promise that we can be like God. Genesis 3, verse 5. We can be like God. There's a very modern iteration of this theme. It's called transhumanism. There's another rendition called posthumanism that is similar. According to transhumanist authors, we are in the process even now of becoming quasi-deified figures. We are crossing the normal borders of biology, psychology, and consciousness, and we are becoming robot-human hybrids. And if this continues, we will eventually solve the problem of death, and we will not die. Eventually, actually, humanity itself will be outmoded, post-humanism, and, and I suppose we will be evolved creatures in robotic form. We will be like God. Do you understand? We will have transcendence, secular transcendence. No need of salvation, no need of regeneration, no need of God. And so we note this, we note what we are being promised at every turn in our society today. The human race as far back as Eve in the garden craves immortality, but on, its, but on its own terms. We see secondly in Genesis 3 that we want godness without God. We want godness without God. Look with me, if you would, at Genesis 3, verses 6 through 13. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The woman took the tree's food, ironically, to gain wisdom. But she has rejected very wisdom itself in making this decision. There has never been a worse decision than this. 
The man, we learn in verse 6, was not far off from this interaction, in case you were wondering that in our first point. The man had not been cultivating a tough patch of brush and then come upon his wife seeking a little snack for refreshment. No, the man was with her. Verse 6, and she gave him the food. As I have alluded already, the man plays a passive role here. He does nothing in the face of pure evil. The very dawn of wickedness itself. He acquiesces. He is the first instance of a passive man who does not protect his home, does not protect his marriage, does not protect his wife. Think about the evil of the serpent as well. The serpent is not only a competitor to God, the serpent is the anti-God. The serpent speaks anti-wisdom. This is not okay what the serpent does. This is not merely misaligned. This is not mere brokenness unfolding here. The serpent is destroying God's creation. And the eyes of the man and woman are opened as they actually do take the forbidden fruit and concretize the fall. So do not misunderstand. There is that moment in this scene, this real historical scene with a real historical Adam in which real historical fruit is bitten by real historical teeth. Are you getting the point? Okay, I think you are. There's a moment when this is all actualized and the horror music kicks in and the fall now has finally occurred, but there is also a trail of events that lead up to this terrible undoing, isn't there? Just as there is for you and me when we wander from God, as we all do, and we start laying our own track away from God. And it's not usually, is it, for you and for me, just one sort of explosive moment when things go awry. Yes? It's usually a pattern of things, uh, a trail of bad choices, a pattern of sin that then, make no mistake, explodes. That's what has happened here in the fall. There's real breakdown, but there's numerous steps in this breakdown that occur leading to, yes, the eating of the fruit and the actual descendants of judgment itself. Following the eating of the fruit, the man and the woman see their bodies with shame. They try to cover themselves. In verse 7, they sew fig leaves together and make themselves loincloths. Has any attempt at covering up sin ever been less successful than this? To sew fig leaves together, to hide from Almighty God. And yet, our own efforts at hiding up our sin are no less pitiful, are they? The man and the woman in wake of sinning against God, wish to hide. They cover themselves. They see their body. This is very interesting for 2019. They see what was beautiful, their body, the manly frame and the womanly frame distinctively made by Almighty God himself. What they see is now grotesque. God formed it as a work of beauty, testifying to his own wisdom in design but the man and the woman now try to hide it. This is the ground of, of all insecurity over our appearance. This is the ground of all shame in our physical person. 
This is the ground of all feelings that people today increasingly seem to feel in a cultural way in terms of gender dysphoria. It all roots here. Now, real sinners need real care, real biblical counseling. Praise God we offer that at this school. And so there's a lot to say in terms of someone's background when they come to us in ministry and and they are caught in, in this complex of issues physical shame, feeling that the body is inadequate, feeling that they are a man trapped in a woman's body or vice versa. There are numerous questions to ask. There's a whole counseling relationship should follow, and yet we should note, this is not the confusion God intended. This is not the sin that God created. This is what the man and the woman do and what the man and the woman experience as a result of their distrusting of God. Well, three times in this passage, the Hebrew makes clear that though God has been defied and wronged, he still is very much on the scene. You see that in verses 8 through 13, as I read, we have the term the Lord God four times used here. This is the kingly term in the Hebrew for God. This term in verses 8 through 13, Lord God in the English, does not refer to God's creational ability here, but to his role as judge. God, who was creator, who was kind sustainer, now shows himself in a new dimension. Now God comes as judge, judge of the earth. And the Lord has a specific figure he targets first. And this is very interesting because the woman has been the main protagonist in the account to this point. But the Lord zeroes in on the man. And this is why you you see that you have to read this account theologically and carefully in accordance with the rest of Scripture and what the rest of Scripture is going to teach about male headship, for example, because this is male headship enacted in this text. Even though Adam has been the passive figure in this scene, Adam is held responsible. First, where are you? Verse 9, singular in the Hebrew. The Lord knows where the man is. He's not confused. His question is intended to draw the man out, literally and figuratively. And the man cites his fear upon learning of the Lord's visitation. The Lord does not address the fear the man mentioned here, but responds by asking him who told him he was naked and then asking whether he ate of the forbidden tree. The man responds by sinking even further into shame as if it's possible. In verse 12, who does the man place first in the order of blame? The woman, the woman. And then he continues it, the woman whom you gave to be with me. Adam blames God first and then Eve. You ever think this to yourself? It's hard to follow earthly pastors. It's hard to follow human shepherds. If I could just be led by God himself, if my church was pastored by Jesus, all these problems would resolve. If I could just talk face-to-face with God and sort out my issues, my sin, I would feel comfortable admitting my wrongs in his presence because after all, he's God. 
Yes, and there wouldn't be any of this weirdness, this social static that human people experience. Do you want to know something? That is theologically and biblically incorrect. <laughs> it shocks me to say this, but you can be face to face with Almighty God Himself, and you can blame shift, and you cannot take responsibility for your sin. In fact, Jesus can show up on the scene, and you can cry out for Him to be killed. That's how strong a force human evil is. Do not underestimate the power of depravity in the human heart. God Himself can be sorting you out, dealing out justice to you. And in the face of it, you cannot take responsibility for your sin. Is that not a little sobering for us sinners, you and me alike? Does that not show us the power we have to deceive ourselves and to blame shift and to justify ourselves in our sin? I think it does. Adam was made by God to lead and protect his wife, as we have said, but he has failed miserably in his tasks. And God's indictment of Adam shows us this clearly. Ray Ortland says it well. As the God-appointed head, Adam bore the primary responsibility to lead this partnership in a God-glorifying direction. But here, as I have said, is the first ever instance of a man acting like a coward and a man blaming his wife for his own sin. The fall is thus a thorough breakdown of creational order and divine design. Satan, Satan has succeeded in his attack. He has sold the man and the woman an anti-marriage based on the inversion of biblical roles. He has effectively convinced the man to be an anti-man and the woman an anti-woman. And so we look further at verse 13 at what the woman responds when God addresses her. The woman also blame shifts, blaming the serpent. Again, what a sign this is of human pride. It is very clear in this scene that we are supposed to see our very strong capacity for blame shifting. But that is not all Genesis 3 tells us. We see thirdly this morning and finally that in the midst of this chaos and human wreckage, the Lord intervenes. There's a real historical fall, and there is a real historical intervention and judgment from God. In, in verses uh, 14 through 19, which I will not read, we see several things. We'll just trace it quickly as we round to a conclusion here this morning. First, we see that Adam dies. Adam dies. This is pronounced in the latter verses here. Adam is not vaguely broken. Adam is not a victim of what has happened. The text could have gone that way if it was not making clear that Adam and Eve have fully embraced sin here. So Genesis 3 is teaching us, contra common worldviews and philosophies today, that we are not fundamentally victims. In Adam, we are fundamentally criminals. That is a strong word. That is a word that causes us to bridle against biblical truth. We want to believe in victimhood, whether psychologically or theologically. And in truth, sinners will do terrible things to one another. That's part of what 
happens as a result of the fall. That is the terrible wreckage of the fall that fathers and mothers will not be kind as they should be and children will not obey their parents and friends will destroy friendships and people will split churches in the new covenant era and on and on it goes. People will murder one another. People will enact campaigns of genocide against one another. There are terrible, terrible effects, 10,000 terrible effects that flow from here and yet scripture is very clear. You and I are not fundamentally, whatever happens to us in our life and our background, victims. We're criminals. The sin of Adam, the Bible plainly teaches, is the sin of all humanity. In other words, we're not supposed to read this account as we have this morning and think, well, if I was there, if I was on the scene, I would have got this straight. I would have got this right. We're supposed to see in the sin of Adam the sin that we ourselves would have committed and in him really did commit. The death of Adam, our federal head, is the death of all humanity. Think of what 1 Corinthians 15 teaches. Verse 21, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So if you're going to be faithful to both Genesis 3 and the witness of numerous other texts, including 1 Corinthians 15, you cannot conclude that Adam did his thing, but you and I are free agents able to do our own thing. At least I think according to 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22, I think you are supposed to understand that you died in Adam and that Adam's death caused by Adam's sin is our death and our sin. Second effect here. The Lord brings judgment upon the union of the man and the woman. We see in verse 16 that the woman is going to seek to master her husband, to rule him. She's going to seek to usurp his place of headship and leadership in the home. And he is going to bite back and not take this well. And he is going to rule over her. Neither of these instances, neither of these pronouncements of judgment are to be understood in happy terms as if this is a good thing. This is not what God intended for the man and the woman, but this is what has come. So every marriage that occurs following from here is a marriage that feels the weight and the effects of the curse. And this means that Christian marriages must be a joint partnership in which we covenant together to kill sin together. And we covenant together to live out the design of God, the gospel design in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, that overturns the effects of the fall. Because as men, by the power of Christ, in the image of Christ, love their wife as Christ loved the church, they affect a real God-granted overturning within a marriage of the effects of the fall. And as the woman submits to her husband, not simply at the 11th hour, but in an all-of-life kind of way, seeing this as joy itself, she is showing that Eve's curse is overcome. So there is hope even for marriages that are nonetheless bearing the weight and effects of the curse. Third effect, the serpent is cursed such that the serpent will face hostility from the woman's offspring. At first, it seems here in Genesis 3 verse 15 that the conflict is between the woman and the serpent, but 
God shifts the focus of this epic struggle. He will strike your head, God says to the serpent, and you will strike his heel, referring to the woman's seed. What God is teaching us here is that there is going to come a massive solution to this problem, and the serpent's work is going to be undone. This is a word closing out this dreadful account of real sin against a real God of tremendous hope. God does not terminate the scene, leaving the man and the woman solely in their misery and their sin. God ends this account here in Genesis 3.15 by giving us the proto-evangelion, the first gospel, the promise of a redeemer. But note just how terrible this redemption will be. This redemption is going to be so significant because evil is so strong that it will occasion the striking of the heel of the woman's seed. You and I understand just how depraved our depravity is when we recognize that Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, had to incarnate and die for us in order to make atonement for all our sin. That is a reality that should cause us every single day we live to hate sin to the full and in the power of Christ's invincible cross to do violence to our sin, to kill it, to put off the old man, Colossians 3, to put our sins to death and by God's spirit-given power to put on the new man and to put on righteousness every day that we live. You see, when the man and the woman know that they have sinned in Genesis 3.8, what do they do? What do they do? Well, we have learned that they have sewed fig leaves together. And we see in verse 8 that they hide themselves. What do they hide themselves behind? A tree. You see, friends, it is a tree that has undone the man and the woman and that has led to the real fall and cursing and sentence of eternal death that hangs over every human head. But it is a tree that will save them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that even as we reckon with the reality, the terrible reality of the fall, even as we refuse to soft pedal or downplay our sin, even as we reckon with it afresh this morning, even as we search our hearts and minds and desires and can see even today, even this morning, this week, this month, clear instances when we have rebelled against you, sinning against our name, sinning against the new nature you have granted us, making us a new creation through Christ, yet there is tremendous hope before us. Father, we confess this morning that the chief mystery before us is not why you allowed the fall. The chief mystery before us in Scripture is why you sent your precious and only Son to save us. Father, that is a truth that we will ponder and celebrate and rejoice in for all 
eternity. Because of a tree, we are undone. Because of a tree, we are lost. We give thanks to you, Father, that because of a tree, we are found. In Christ's undefeated name we pray. Amen.